been. This is the account of Shem. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. And after he became the father of and after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg. And after he became the father of Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and he had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Ru. And after he became the father of Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Ru lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor lived, had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran. And this is the account of Terah. And you can take over, Helen. Yeah, oh, here you go. Oh, Read this okay. one, that's fine. Um, Terah became. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Haran and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. <clears throat> I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when they set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled throughout the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. 
with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. Father in heaven, we do want to thank you now for this uh, precious time that we can spend in your word. And we do ask, uh, Lord God, that you would give us uh, insight and understanding and a desire to uh, put our trust and our hope in you and uh, live obediently. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How are we going there, guys? Is that still kind of echoing through? <coughs> okay, it worked fine in the first service, but uh, anyway, that sounds a bit better. Um, in 1984, there was a young grade seven boy in America who wrote a letter to the president of the United States. The president at that time was Ronald Reagan. Some of you will remember him. And uh, in this letter, he wrote this. He said, Dear Mr. President, today my mother declared my bedroom to be a disaster area. And so I would like to request federal funds to hire a crew to clean up my room. Uh, signed, Andy Smith. Now, President Reagan was a guy with a pretty good sense of humour and a pretty you know, connected, relational kind of person as well. So he decided to write back. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, Dear Andy, I'm sorry to be so late in answering your letter. As you know, I've been in China. Your application for disaster relief has been duly noted. But I must point out one technical problem. The authority declaring the natural disaster is supposed to make the request. In this case, your mother. However, setting that aside, I'll have to point out the larger problem of available funds. This year has been a year of disasters. 539 hurricanes, numerous floods, forest fires, drought in Texas, and a number of earthquakes. May I make a suggestion? This administration, believing that government has done many things that could be done better by volunteers at a local level, has sponsored a private sector initiative program, calling on people to practice volunteerism in the solving of a number of local problems your situation appears to be unnatural. And the president concludes by saying, I'm sure your mother was fully justified in proclaiming your room a disaster. Therefore, you are in an excellent position to launch another volunteer program to go along with the more than 3,000 already underway in our nations. Congratulations, sincerely, Ronald Reagan. How do you like that, eh? Isn't that cute? Yeah, that's a beautiful letter. And uh, when Ronald Reagan died a few years ago, they, they published a, a number of these kind of letters. And I think I might have actually seen this one uh, when we were visiting Washington a few years ago in one of the museums. It's a really nice letter. Um, what was the most powerful man in the world saying to that little boy? What was he saying? He's saying, clean up your bedroom, mate. <laughs> that's what he was saying. And, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty good advice, isn't it? Because often the most loving thing that you can say to someone who's uh, created a mess is fix it yourself. I mean, uh, you know, you don't want to get in there and, you know, clean up, you know, other people. They'll never learn the lesson 
unless they fix it themselves. Now, of course, uh, you know, that's a cute example, but a lot of the problems that we face in our world are just so big that we cannot fix them ourselves. And especially the problem that we've been looking at as we've been working through Genesis chapters 1 to 11, and that is we've been looking at really what is humankind's biggest problem, isn't it? And that is our uh, broken relationship with God. Uh, We've been looking at the problem of human sin. And uh, the question is, is that the kind of problem that you can just go and fix up yourself? You know, today we're, uh, we're actually coming to the end of our series on Genesis 1 through to chapter 12 because that's a nice little unit of Genesis in itself. Um, over the uh, school holiday periods, we're going to uh, be heading to the New Testament and we're going to be doing a short series on the first letter of John, so 1 John. And then in the next term, term 3, we're going to come back to Genesis. and We're going to start again at chapter 12. And we're going to go through to chapter 50. I'm really looking forward to that, actually. That'll be a a great time of getting into God's Word. But it's a good opportunity today for us just to to pause and to think through what we've learnt so far in Genesis chapters 1 through to chapter 11. And uh, because what we see in these chapters is a, 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 a real diagnosis of what the human problem actually is. So what have we learnt? Well, we've learned from chapters 1 and 2 that there is a God and God created our world and he created a very, very good world. Uh, we've seen in chapter 3 that uh, Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, against his authority to rule their lives has corrupted relationships, and particularly the relationship uh, between uh, humankind and God, uh, the relationship that we have with each other, and the relationship uh, that we have with the creation itself. So um, those relationships have been corrupted. And then we've seen how, as the generations rolled on, that sin uh, intensified. Uh, Firstly, with Cain, uh, Adam and Eve's son Cain, actually murdering his brother because of jealousy. And then you'll recall there was one of their uh, descendants, uh, the man Lamech, and Lamech uh, wasn't even ashamed of killing someone. He boasted about that. He wrote a song about the fact that he'd uh, killed a young man who had injured him. A couple of weeks back, we saw how the spread of sin really grieved the heart of God and that our race uh, was uh, almost wiped out uh, in the flood uh, during the time of Noah. Then we come to last week. Last week where we saw how the uh, descendants of Noah uh, and the men of Babel had tried to assert themselves over God. So that's where we're up to. And I guess in summary we could say that Genesis chapters 1 to 11 tells us that the world we live in is not as God intended. And to this day, that's our experience, isn't it? To this day, life in this world is a a strange mix of of joy and of sadness, of of peace and of conflict. Because just like Adam and Eve, we too... 
uh, want to live our lives our way and not God's way. And just as in Noah's time, we too face judgment. Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. That's the human condition. That's the human problem. But it's not like that letter that the boy sent to the president or the president sent the letter to the boy because for us there is no fix-it-yourself kind of solution. We, We need outside help. We need a rescue plan and we need a rescue plan coming from God. Now, in Genesis 11 and 12, we catch a glimpse of that plan. And so we're going to turn to that now. If you'd like to open your Bibles up at Genesis chapter 11. And uh, <clears throat> in chapter 11, uh, what do we find in verses 10 through to 26? Well, we find that passage that Peter so bravely read for us. Uh, we find another genealogy, another genealogy. So in verse 10, uh, you know, it says two years after the flood when Shem, it's a son of uh, Noah, when Shem was 100 years old, that he became the father of uh, Aphaxad and he lived 500 years and Aphaxad, well, he had a son who was called Shelah and so and on and on it, it, it rolls. But in this list of tongue-twisting Mesopotamian names, one of the things which stands out is that as sinful humanity grows, that the lifespans of people gradually decrease. And we see that throughout that genealogy, that lifespan of people is decreasing. Now, one of the reasons that the Bible has genealogies is in order to show us the connection between the first person on the list and the last person on the list. And so this genealogy here starts with Noah's son Shem and it finishes with uh, a man who really is one of the most important people in the story of the Bible and that is a man called Abraham. Now, why is Abraham so important? Well, the story of Abraham is actually the great turning point of the whole of the Bible. Think about the story so far. Uh, What we see is that in Genesis chapter 11 through to 12, that these chapters are filled with big picture kind of stuff. You know, that there is a God and that he is mighty and powerful beyond anything that you can imagine. And that he has created the universe and, and the world we live in. And the universe and the world are separate from God. That he is above uh, these things of his creation. And that God has created uh, human beings to be the pinnacle of his creation. To be in relationship with himself. And we've learnt of... Uh, uh, the big issues of, of humanity, of, of, of our sin and of, uh, of, of judgment, uh, that, uh, uh, the, the judgment of God. And so 
and of death. And so you've got this very big, grand kind of stuff that Genesis 1 to 11 is, is teaching, big cosmological kind of... But then here in this passage, uh, the Bible now zeroes in on just one man and the family of this one man. And we can say that the rest of the Bible is about the descendants, both physical and spiritual, of this one man, uh, this man, Abraham. So we're at the, the pivotal point, we're at the turning point of the book of Genesis when we meet Abraham. So let's get into it, shall we? Um, in Genesis chapter 11, verses 27 to 32, we're told that Abraham's father was named Terah, and that the family lived in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. On your outlines there, you'll see a map, and uh, on that map it has the modern-day political entities. But it shows you where Ur is. It's in Iraq. It's on the southern side of the Euphrates River. Uh, it's a real place. It exists today. And uh, Terah and his family lived in Ur, Ur was referred to as Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are a group of people who lived in that area and Chaldea itself in those days was thought of as being part of, uh, part of Babylonia, part of Babylon. So Chaldea was part of Babylon, uh, modern-day Iraq, and that is where Terah and his family came from. Now, Abraham's family, or Terah's family, uh, they did not know God. Uh, they, in Joshua chapter 24, we're told that they worshipped um, uh, other gods, they worshipped uh, false gods, uh, they worshipped idols, for God had not specifically revealed himself to them at this point. Uh, in verse 31, Terah with his son Abram, with his daughter-in-law Sarai, and with his grandson Lot, they set out on a journey. Now you can trace the journey there on the map that's provided for you. They wanted ultimately to uh, get as far as Canaan, but they've travelled along the river rather than going down through the desert. And uh, they hoped to get to Canaan, which is the area around where Israel and, uh, uh, and Palestine and uh, Lebanon, that area there on the map. But they didn't get that far. Instead, they stopped and they settled in uh, the place that is called Haran, which you can also see on the map. It was in Haran that God uh, revealed himself that, that, that is God, the true God, revealed himself to them and uh, he introduced his rescue plan for the world. So that in verses 1 through to 9, he makes a covenant with Abraham. Now, a covenant, uh, it's, it's a bit like a contract, an agreement between two parties. Um, generally with a covenant... Uh, it would be an agreement between two parties that are not exactly equal parties. 
And uh, so you, you'll have the stronger party saying that these are the things which I will do for you. And then there's a requirement on the weaker party, the, the smaller party, to do certain things uh, uh, which will be of, um, towards the stronger party. And so that's uh, just very briefly the difference between a contract and a covenant uh, in the Bible. And so what was God's covenant with Abraham? Well, verses 1 through to 3, let's have a look at that. The Lord, that is Yahweh, um, the Lord Yahweh had said to her, in distinction to the gods that, um, uh, that Abraham's family had been worshipping, uh, Yahweh said to Abraham, leave your country, by then that's Haran, your people and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So uh, that is the, uh, the promise, and the requirement is that he leaves and goes to the land where God will show him. Now, if you think back to Genesis 3, back to the Garden of Eden, uh, if there was one word that you could use to describe the effects of the fall, what do you think that word might be uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 3? A word that would describe the effects of the fall. Any ideas, any thoughts? Well, yes, uh, Lachlan? Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? That uh, death uh, is a, you know, the, the, the wages of sin is death, uh, is what Paul says in Romans, and that's what we see in Genesis. Any other thoughts? Curse. Curse, yep, that's another good one, isn't it? Curse. Because when you think about, uh, you know, what um, God said to the serpent, he said, Cursed are you, and from now on you're going to slither around on your belly. You know, all your days, uh, cursed are you. And what did he say to to Adam? He said, "Cursed is the is the ground because of you." And you know, it's by the sweat of your brow that you'll now toil to get the food for your family. And indeed, although the word "curse" is not used for uh, for Eve, uh, and I guess Lauren would be able to talk to us about this. You know, that he would increase pain in child in childbirth. So there is that sense that the, the word that summarises the effects of the fall is the word curse. Now, what is the opposite to God's curse? If you could think of what, what would be the exact opposite to God cursing someone, it would be God, God blessing someone. God blessing. So the opposite of God's curse is God's blessing. And that's what we see here, isn't it, uh, in these promises to Abraham. In fact, it's interesting also to, to compare uh, this story with what we looked at last week with respect to the, the Tower of Babel and to contrast the 
the plans of man uh, in, in Babel with the promises of God to Abraham. Um, let, let's, let's just go back a page to, Genesis, to chapter 11, verse 4. So we're heading back to Babel uh, and uh, the, um, the men of Babel in verse 4, uh, where we're told that uh, having invented bricks and mortar, so that they're not relying on big blocks of chiselled stone anymore, in verse 4, then they said, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So there in Babel, uh, mankind planned three things. Uh, firstly, he planned to build a city with a tower. But... In the next chapter, God promises to make Abraham into a great nation. So man plans to build a city. God promises to make a nation. And it's interesting if you look at the verses which are printed for you on your, the back of your bulletins there, uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, uh, we are told that uh, Abraham uh, actually looked forward to, to a heavenly city. Uh, not like Babel, Abraham looked forward to a great city, a heavenly city, his inheritance. So that's the first thing. The second contrast uh, is that uh, in Babel, that mankind planned to make a name for himself. But uh, to Abraham, to Abraham, God promised that he would make a name for Abraham. So man uh, plans to make a name for himself. God promises to make a name for Abraham. And thirdly, uh, in Babel, mankind planned to stick together. But God promised uh, that people who would be spread throughout the whole of the earth would be blessed through Abraham. So there are three contrasts between man's plan and God's promise. And for his part, what did Abraham have to do? Well, in verse 1, he had to, he had to believe and leave, essentially. He had to leave his, his country, uh, his father's household, and he had to go to the land that God would show him. He had to obey God and trust that God's promises would be fulfilled. And that's what faith is, isn't it? I mean, I think that there's some wishy-washy thinking uh, around the place about uh, what faith is. Um, some people think of faith as being some kind of a mystical sort of experience. Uh, others think of faith as being something which... Some people have got inside them and other people don't have inside them. But what is faith? Um, faith is trust, isn't it? Uh, to have faith in something or someone is to trust that thing or that person. So we all exercise faith when we sit down on the chair. We have trust that the chair is going to hold us up. We're not going to collapse on the ground. So we ex it's, it's simple trust. 
That's what faith is. And so, <clears throat> and so uh, uh, Abraham had to, uh, to trust that uh, what God said was true. And what it means is that ultimately, to have faith means to trust God's word and to act on that word. That's as simple as that, isn't it? So what's important in one sense is not how much faith do I have, but how trustworthy is the object of my faith. I can, I can believe in my head as much as I like that the seat is going to hold me up, but if someone's gone and pulled out all of the bolts that hold it together, it won't do it. Uh, the important thing about faith is the object of our faith and the trustworthiness of that object or that person. God is worthy of our faith. God is trustworthy and what God promises, God fulfills. And uh, the fulfilment for Abraham would be with respect to his descendants. Uh, the Bible has a very interesting word for descendant. It's the word seed, and it's sometimes translated as offspring. I wonder if you might just come with me briefly to <clears throat> chapter 22 and uh, verses 17 through to 18. Uh, because here, God repeats his covenant with Abraham who is now given a different name, he's now called Abraham. And there's a reason for that, because Abram's, Abram's name is a meaningful name. Uh, Abram's name means blessed father. And uh, that may have been a, a slight embarrassment to him, because at age 75, uh, he didn't have any kids whatsoever. So you can imagine that, you know, for a Middle Eastern man... Uh, you know, you meet someone for the first time and, you know, and they say, what's your name? And you say, oh, my, my name's Blessed Father. And they say, oh, that's, that's fantastic. That's terrific. How many have you got? And you go, oh, well, I've got none, actually. <laughs> so it's a little bit embarrassing. And uh, more embarrassing when God changed his name from Abra Abraham to Abraham, which means father of many. And uh, yet he still did not have any children, but that's what we'll be learning about when we come back to Genesis in third term. Let's have a look at the uh, covenant uh, repeated in verses 17 and 18. In verse 17, God says, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now here um, the promises for his descendants, uh, the people who would come from his own body, the body of his wife, but um, the word offspring there is quite critical uh, it's quite critical because in Galatians chapter 3, Galatians 3 verse 16, which you might want to jot down, 
the Apostle Paul points out that in the Hebrew that this, this word is not uh, plural, that it's actually singular. And what it's actually saying is that there is one particular descendant, one particular offspring of Abraham uh, through whom all nations on earth would be blessed. And that would happen because through that one particular offspring that God would reverse the effects of the, of the fall, that God would reverse the curse. For the blessing is the reversal of the curse of Genesis chapter 3. One person, one person who would reverse the curse and turn it into a blessing, uh, one person who would rescue us from sin and from uh, death and judgment, uh, one person who would reverse the curse of Genesis chapter 3 so that far from being barred by flashing swords from coming to the tree of life, that we would be able to partake of the tree of life. Now it's interesting when you get to the first, um, uh, the first chapter of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, how does Matthew uh, start his gospel in Matthew chapter 1? He starts his gospel with a, what is it? With a, with a genealogy. And, uh, you know, who is the person who is at the, at the first, who is the first person on that genealogy? It is Abraham. Who is the last person in the genealogy? It is Jesus. So remember what I told you before about the purpose of genealogies, to see the connection between the first person and the last person on the list. And uh, here we have it there in Matthew chapter 1, that uh, the, uh, it starts with Abraham and it finishes with that one descendant. It finishes with that, that one, that singular offspring who is Jesus, the Christ, the one, the one through whom the curse would be reversed, the one through whom the nations would be blessed. I've said it before, but I think it's a good story, the well-known story of the uh, journalist who used to write for the London Times newspaper and he used to report on the events of the world. And he'd always sign off his uh, articles with the question, what's wrong with the world? And it's the sort of question that you sometimes hear when you're mixing with your non-Christian friends and they think it's all too much. What's wrong with our world? Uh, and uh, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton famously wrote a reply to that question. He wrote, Dear Editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> That's a good response, isn't it? That's a great letter because it makes a very powerful statement about the root cause of the problems of this world. And things haven't changed, have they? Our newspapers are full of the problems of this world, be they political problems, and there's a few of those about, economic problems, social problems, environmental problems, crime problems. What's wrong with the world? I am. Uh, Scott Donnellan is the problem with this world. Um, Peter Charles 
is the problem with this world. Luke Hutchins is the problem with this world. Um, who else can I pick on? Um, <laughs> Nancy Owen, she's the problem, the nicest person you could meet, but she's the problem of the world because ultimately, friends, uh, you know, what is the problem with the world? We are. You are. I am. We are because we share Adam and Eve's inherited nature that we are people who, by nature, without God working specially in our lives, that our hearts are against God, that we would much prefer to live our way uh, without God. We'll call on him when we need him from time to time, but we want to be the rulers of our little kingdom. We want to build our, t- our tower. Uh, we want to run our lives our way. And that's why we've created such a big mess. Uh, all of humanity from Adam to us is part of this mess. We're part of it. And it's not a question of being able just kind of solving the problem by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. I mean, the big problem is that we, without uh, special intervention of God in our lives that we're out of relationship with God. And there's not much that a human being can do that, to do about that, because we are dead in our trespasses and sins. You can't just pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. You can't do anything by way of religion. You can't, no religious ceremony, no religious ritual, no religious observances can actually build the connection between us and God. And morality and trying to be a good person can't do it either because no matter how good we try to be, there is nothing which we can do to cancel out and to neutralise the the sin which is in our hearts. We cannot fix it ourselves, but God has fixed it as Jesus paid for our sin on the cross. Abraham is a great example of faith. Faith. Because he trusted that the promise of God was true and then he acted on that. And we see that in uh, verses 4 through to 10. Uh, If you can picture Abraham, and I guess one way that we can picture Abraham is to think about the more modern day equivalent of the Bedouin uh, nomads and the sheik. Uh, You know, a Bedouin nomad would have his tents and his uh, wife and his family and his uh, entourage of people and his camels and goats and sheep and cattle and, and so on. And uh, Abraham was like that. He was like a, a Bedouin uh, nomad. And here in verses 4 to 10, we're told that, he, that he's packed up his tent, he's packed up all his sheep and his cattle and he would have had servants as well. And with his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, They left and they set out for the land that God would show them. And when we come back to Genesis next term, we're going to learn more about the great adventure that that was for Abraham and his wife. But as we wrap up uh, Genesis 1 to 12 today, the message is that we need to be like Abraham. We need to trust the rescue plan that God has made possible in Jesus. And we need to commit our lives to Jesus. But God's plan is not just for you and me. It is a plan which 
which reaches out into every part of the world, bringing blessing rather than curse to all nations. The Tower of Babel uh, is a story that tells us about the confusion of languages and the scattering of all people. But God's promise in Jesus is a, is a promise about a people from all over the globe gathered, gathered together and living for God forever just as he intended. So the kingdom of God starts in Eden and then uh, as Christians have taken the gospel, the kingdom has spread out to the whole of the world. Uh, as people of every race, of every nation, of every tribe, of every language have claimed Jesus to be their king. And in a couple of weeks' time, when Perry and, and, uh, uh, and Karen are with us, uh, we'll be hearing the, the remarkable story about how the, 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 this good promise from God that started in Mesopotamia and has found its ways to the shores of Port Macquarie then goes back to Mesopotamia with missionaries like Perry and Karen uh, sharing the good news about the one, uh, the one descendant, the one offspring, who is the one who can change a curse into a blessing through the gospel. And of course the picture of uh, this really finds its climax uh, in heaven. Uh, and uh, where John in Revelation chapter 7 wrote of what he saw, his vision of heaven, where he said that I saw before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's God's plan, and the question is, of course, is it your plan? Are you committed to seeing people come to know God through the gospel of Jesus? And if so, are you praying for people that God would give you opportunities to speak to them about Jesus so that their eyes would be opened? Are we like Abraham? Are we people who are looking forward to the heavenly city of God, of all nations, of all people, worshipping God because of Jesus, the offspring who turns a curse into a blessing through his work on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for uh, the great promises that you gave to Abraham. Father, we thank you that uh, through your offspring, Jesus, that you have reversed the effects of the fall, uh, that you have reversed the curse. We thank you for your work in our lives. Uh, that uh, we are now able to trust in him who is worthy of our trust. Father, we pray for the continued spread of the gospel into the hearts and the lives of many, many people throughout our world. And we look forward to that day when we would be gathered in your throne room, singing your praises with brothers and sisters from all parts of the world through all ages because of Jesus and what he's done for us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.